0: So we pick up in Acts chapter 13, at verse 13, uh, we have uh, been reading here of this first missionary journey, as it's called, of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and also John Mark. And verse 13, uh, they've been on the island of Cyprus and now they continue on. We read these words, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's the very far west of the island of Cyprus, and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, also called Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he, that is God, had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus He has spoken in this way. Psalm 16, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And again, to all these words, God's people say, I want to remind you what we uh, mentioned before, what I mentioned before, uh, about this idea uh, of revival. What is revival? You see the sermon title this morning, The Spirit Revives a Synagogue. What's revival? Well, there's, we can put it in contrast. There's biblical revival, and then there is, of course, revivalism. Or there is true revival, and there is false revival. Uh, true revival, we've said before, uh, trying to define it, is the extraordinary blessing of God on the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace is just a sort of shorthand slogan that we use to describe the word The sacraments of baptism and communion, uh, prayer itself, and others. But especially the word and sacraments and prayer. And so revival is God extraordinarily blessing. He normally blesses those means, doesn't he? When we read the Bible, doesn't God bless us? When we pray, does God bless us? When we have baptism and communion, does God bless us? Yes. God ordinarily does that. These are the means that he gives to us to communicate to us. But there are times and places and seasons where God extraordinarily blesses them for his glory and for our salvation and the salvation of the world. And so revival is God extraordinarily blessing the ordinary things that we are to be doing every single day and week as we gather together. On the other hand, the false idea of revival, revivalism that's so prevalent in our culture, uh, in the the sub-Christian culture, Uh, it it focuses on things like emotion uh, and experience and results and maybe even the atmosphere that we can create. Biblical revival is God giving new life. First to his people, to us, And then through us to the lost, to those who are dead in their sins, to those who are blind and cannot see, those who wander in their own ways, those who walk that broad path that leads to destruction. Revival is God reviving us, giving us new life as his people, and then through us giving that new life to the world. And so we've said that revival is the sovereign prerogative of the Holy Spirit. As some writers have said, we, the church, pray it down. We don't work it up. In other words, we ask God to renew us, to refresh us, to revive us, to bless the means that we have, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Lord, bless these means in a great and powerful way. We ask him to do this. We don't work it up. We don't put a slogan outside. We don't put a banner outside on the street saying, Revival next Saturday and Sunday. We don't hire a a really exciting band to really, really get us in the spirits. And that's what revival is. No, revival is God doing his work when he wants, where he wants, how he wants, for as long as he wants. We ask God to bless. We don't create the blessing ourselves. I say that because we come again to the book of Acts and in chapter 13 here. Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey, uh, they make their way eventually, we see here, uh, to Antioch in Pisidia. And we read here of a revival in the synagogue of the Jews and God-fearers. It's the work of God here that we see, that we should behold this morning, not the works of Paul or Barnabas. These are the acts of Jesus Christ but the power of the Holy Spirit through them, but yet, these are the works of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see there, first of all, that there's this revival, uh, this sovereign, uh, uh, the spirit's sovereignty in where this revival happens. Notice that first. The spirit's sovereignty, his power, his will, his desire, in where this work happens. And so there is Saul, or Paul, and there is Barnabas, and they sail from the ver- very further, uh, furthermost uh, western part of the island of Cyprus, and they sail about 188 miles north to what is today southeastern Turkey, the Turkish coast, to the city of Perga, that in those days was in the region of Pamphylia, uh, the Roman province of Pamphylia. Uh, and they make their way there. And then we read again uh, that uh, after there, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Well, why did they go from Perga Uh, and and immediately Luke, the author, tells us that they skipped over to Antioch in Pisidia. Well, to get from uh, Perga to Antioch is uh, itself a bit of a journey. You would take a road, and uh, if you know that region of the world, uh, there is a mountain range called the Taurus Mountains, and so they had to cross this Roman road to get from the coast up the mountains to about a 3,600 foot elevation to Pisidia in Antioch. Perga was a Uh, an important city, uh, as was Antioch, although Antioch became a a very important city in the times of the Caesars. Uh, It was uh, a military hub in the time of uh, Augustus, Caesar. And so they make their way there. Why? Well, Paul tells us, gives us a little clue, a little hint in the book of Galatians chapter 4. He says that on his journey uh, to this region, uh, on his way to Galatia, that he got sick. He got sick. And people speculate and conjecture, and uh, for good reason, that uh, in that part of the world, that Mediterranean climate, there's a lot of malaria, and perhaps Paul uh, was sick, and so to, to recoup uh, and to get better was to leave this, uh, this, uh, cl- uh, this, this humid, uh, malaria-ridden climate to travel a little bit north and to go in elevation uh, to recover from that illness, in other words, it's the sovereign will of God that somehow he got sick with some disease or some illness, and that drove him from Perga to Antioch in Pisidia. And this Antioch—it's one of uh, Al mentioned last Sunday. Uh, there are several Antiochs that we read about in the Book of Acts. Yeah, there are actually 16 Antiochs uh, in the ancient world. Uh, they were all named after uh, Antiochus, and so Antioch became a very popular name. And they stretch across. Uh, the Greek world from uh, modern-day uh, Afghanistan all the way here uh, to uh, to Turkey, modern-day Turkey. These Antiochs. Uh, this is one of, the, one of 16 Antiochs. Why go from Perga to Antioch? Well, again, it illustrates to us it's the will of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to whom he wants, when he wants, and where he wants. Well, why do they go to a synagogue then? They get there in... Uh, Antioch and Pisidia, why into a synagogue of the Jews and these God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who are attracted to, I've mentioned before, they are attracted to the God of Israel. Uh, they, they leave their paganism, their polytheism, their mini-gods, the Romans and Greeks and all the cultures around them, to the one God of the Jews. And they leave all the debauchery and sin of that empire to serve the true and living God uh, as uh, that code that he encapsulated for them in the Ten Commandments. And it's so that they, they make their way there to a synagogue. Why? Well, theologically speaking, uh, there's a reason, uh, and it's this Jesus said that salvation comes from the Jews. John 4. Salvation comes from the Jews. Why did he say that? Why did Jesus say that? The Abrahamic promise. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So those of us who've been here for a while, go back last year, way back when last year, a year and a half ago to when we began the book of Genesis, and remember the story of Abraham. God called him, and it was through him that God said all the nations would be blessed. Salvation is from the Jews. And because of that, Paul strategically, as we read about in the book of Acts, in his Uh, In his journeys, and we read about this in the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, he says that the gospel comes to all who believe. To the Jew first, and also, oh, people of God, you know this, brothers and sisters, we know this. To the Greeks, right? To the Gentiles. The gospel goes first to the Jews, then the Greeks. So Paul had this strategy, because the gospel was from the Jews, Uh, and from them to the world. And then practically speaking, well, why does he and Barnabas, uh, why did he and Barnabas go to a synagogue first when they make their way to Antioch in Pisidia? Uh, what, What was Paul's job before he became a preacher? Well, he was a tent maker, but what was his religious job? What does that mean he was a Pharisee? He was a rabbi. What's a rabbi? A teacher. A teacher. A preacher. So he was a very strict, pharisaical rabbi. Uh, what about Barnabas? What have we learned about Barnabas so far in the book of Acts? What, uh, what tribe was he from? Do you remember? Barnabas was a Jew as well. And he was from a very specific tribe, one of the 12 tribes. Which one? He was from the tribe of Levi. Why is that so important? The priesthood line. We read about this way back uh, in Acts, I think it was 6 or 7, that when Stephen preached, many priests became obedient to the faith. And most likely than not, Barnabas was among the fruit of Stephen's ministry. And so here's Paul and Barnabas, knowing that salvation comes from Abraham, Father Abraham, from the Jews, and to the world. And they know, as Jews, Jews. They know the Jewish mindset. They know the Jewish scriptures. They know the Jewish worldview. They know everything about being a Jew. And so they go to the Jews first to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And those who are Gentiles that just happen to be there, who are serving the God of Israel, also now hear of this Messiah, the Savior that God has sent. In other words, you can see there the practical reality of Paul and Barnabas, yes, as an apostle and as an apostle's assistant. Sent by the Holy Spirit in in a way that you and I may never experience, but yet the same principle applies. That you and I need to search our own hearts and ask God to renew us. Why? So that through us, we might be able to reach those that we know best. If it's the Jews, then the Jews. Or whatever it might be. Whatever little sphere, little circle of life that you find yourself in every single day. You know your, fr- your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, your teammates. You know them best. And so who best to reach them? You. So we see then, first of all, the spirit's sovereignty in where the gospel goes. Where this work of bringing life and new life goes. It goes to Antioch. Notice it didn't go to Perga. We'll see this later on in chapter 16, where the Holy Spirit explicitly forbids Paul from traveling to where Paul wanted to go because the Holy Spirit had other plans for him. So there are times and places where the Holy Spirit calls servants of God to speak the gospel there, but not over here. Here, not over there. That's the first point. Secondly, notice the Spirit's sovereign use of Scripture here in Acts 13. This is a mostly a sermon, you see, of Paul uh, as he's preaching there in that synagogue. And the Spirit sovereignly uses Scripture. So again, go back to that big point of what revival is. What is it again? The extraordinary blessing of God on what? The ordinary means. Such as the Word. The Spirit sovereignly sends Paul and Barnabas to use the Word, to bless the Word in a powerful way. And they're there in a synagogue and the attendant, the, the, the leader of the synagogue, reads from the Law of the Prophets and they would have had uh, the Law, meaning Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books, the Pentateuch. They would have had a three-year lectionary to read all five books every three years on the Sabbath day. And then there would have been pro- uh, readings from the, the Old Testament Prophets that corresponded to the Law to explain Those words, and so they are sitting there in what we would like, like what we're experiencing here. They had an Old Testament reading. We have a New Testament reading. They had a law and a prophets. Those are read, and then they know that these are Jewish men, and uh, they see them there. And no doubt, they probably dressed still in rabbi dress or Levitical dress, so that they would know that they were uh, they were trained uh, Jewish teachers, and they asked them to speak a word of exhortation. And so Paul gets up and speaks. Notice what he begins by saying. He traces there the whole history of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament history he traces. From the patriarchs, Abraham, all the way to Jesus, the fulfillment of those things. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but when we read those words, uh, beginning there in verse number 18, or excuse me, verse 17, uh, did you notice there that Paul didn't describe and trace the works of the patriarchs, the fathers, the prophets. It wasn't what Abraham did or Moses did or David did or Samuel the prophet did. Whose works are, is he describing here? God's, the Lord's, notice that. The God of this people of Israel chose, right? God chose our fathers. He made the people great. With his uplifted arm, meaning his strength, he led them out of Egypt. He put up with them for 40 years. What an understatement that is. God put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness. Notice verse 19. It was God who destroyed the nations of Canaan. It was God who gave the land as an inheritance. Uh, And uh, notice there, it was God who gave them judges and so forth. Yes, they asked for a king, but it was God who gave them the king, and so forth, right? It's the work of God that he's tracing. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis, with Abraham, all the way to. He's showing us how to read our Bible. He's showing us how to read our Old Testament. What's the Old Testament about? I don't know, you know, it's hard to read some of these stories sometimes. They don't make a lot of sense, they seem kind of harsh. And so we come up with like nice... Sunday school-ish ways of reading the Old Testament. Dare to be a Daniel. There's a Christian song that, that we hear on the radio sometimes. Uh, uh, in a, 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 Something like, uh, ah, I can't remember what, how it goes, but it's all about Daniel, like how we need to be like Daniel and fight the lion in our den. How we need to be like David and fight the Goliath in our life, and so forth. It's using these men and these women just as moral examples. You know, how we can be like them, how we can do things that they did. What happens when you read the Old Testament that way and you realize, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really being very successful fighting the Goliaths in my life. You know, that lion, his jaws are pretty sharp, pretty strong. You get pretty discouraged, don't you? Paul is showing us how to read the Old Testament from the vantage point of God. What is God doing? How is God keeping his promise? How is God bringing us a Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That's so important for us today. That's so important for us today. Uh, This way of reading our Bible, it roots our faith, our subjective faith, in objective reality, in objective history. And you can see that he's tracing real history. These things really happen. We live in a time of cultural amnesia. I mean, we hardly remember the last election cycle, right? I mean, we're on to the next one. Who remembers, you know, this guy or, or that gal? And who remembers what happened, you know, 40, 50 years ago? But the scriptures root our faith in objective historical realities. And we, as, 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 as Paul here, can just revel in the work of God. Look what God has done throughout human history. Look at how he has acted. Look at how he's kept his promises. And so Paul describes here the Old Testament sort of like a seed that God planted and that God watered and that as the coming of our Lord drew near, that that seed that was watered and cultivated, that it began to bud and to flower into full bloom in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see where he says that in verse 23, of this man's offering, speaking of David, God has brought to Israel a Savior. And he doesn't shy away from naming that Savior Jesus as he promised. As he promised. So he traces the Old Testament. He gets to the heart of the message. You see that in verse 26 and following. The heart of the message is what? How would you describe the heart of that message verse 26 to 37 that center part of the sermon what's he saying what's he describing what's the central thing that he's trying to drive home there he sent a savior named jesus big deal right big deal what did he do this savior named jesus that god promised to send what did he do look there Look there with me, verse 28, 29, 30. Do you recognize what he says there? He tells us that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and what? He rose again. Crucified, buried, rose again. Now, those three things, I know it's a long time ago, but just two Sundays ago on Easter Sunday, cultural amnesia Right? I know it's hard for us to remember that far back, but we, we were here, a we lot of, of us were here on Sunday, that Sunday, two Sundays ago, and we read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. And when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, and he told the Corinthians, you know, here is the gospel, how did he describe and define the gospel? Remember that? 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was... Before he was raised, he was buried. He was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. You see that here? The heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Amen? The heart of the gospel is Christ. And so, notice this as well, that he puts Christ at the center, not even his own personal testimony, if I can put it that way. It's all what Christ has done. And yes, Christ has transformed the apostle. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. We saw that two Sundays ago. That He, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. I've been utterly transformed. And he's going to mention that a couple times later on in Acts as well. He's going to describe how Jesus Christ appeared to him uh, on, that, on that road and knocked him to his feet and converted him on the spot. He's going to say that. But notice that the focus, though, is always on Christ. It's what Christ has already done what Christ has already done. And so all of that history comes to Jesus Christ. Just imagine a big funnel, right, at the, at the top of the funnel. It's very wide and, and very broad, and that's all the Old Testament history, and it all focuses down like a funnel to this one person of Jesus. Creation and, and, and Abraham and, and Moses and David, it all leads to one man, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and so he's bringing this to them. All this history focused on Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then here's the so what, right? That's the what. Here's the so what. Verse thirty-eight. You can see it there in a typical Paul, in a typical Pauline way, in a Paul kind of writing. Or here it's him preaching in Luke's writing, but verse thirty-eight let it be known to you, therefore, right? Paul's letters have that therefore a lot. When you read your New Testament, you come to Paul's letters, and he describes all that God has done in Jesus Christ. He typically has a therefore moment, right? This is the application. This is the significance. This is why it's so important to listen. What's the therefore? Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What an amazing thing. It's not just that God made the world and he chose Abraham, you know, that that gray-bearded man way long ago. Not just that he sent Moses to Israel and not just that he gave David the place of of Saul, the the son of Kish. Not just that he sent Samuel the prophet and so forth. And not even just that he sent Jesus. Jesus. It's not just that Jesus came and yes, he fulfilled all these promises. He's the hope of the Israelites. He's their king, their prophet, and so forth. But notice the significance is that all that he did was for this forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And again, notice it's not just that he did all this to bring forgiveness. He says it very personally, does Paul, that this forgiveness is proclaimed to you. To you in this place today, even. God has done what He has done in the history of the world to bring forgiveness of sins to you, sinner. To you. And that's what He says there in verse 39. He says, By Him, everyone who believes. So the gospel's proclaimed. Forgiveness is proclaimed to you today, and to everyone who believes, they are freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. How many laws in the Old Testament? Do you know how many laws? 613 mitzvot commandments. 613 commandments, right? The mitzvot of the Old Testament. That's a lot of laws. And they were so zealous of those laws. We saw this in the Gospel of Mark, in our sermons there on the Gospel of Mark quite a while ago, that the Jews, the Pharisees especially, that they were so zealous of the law of God, they didn't even want to get close to transgressing God's laws. What do they do? They describe it as building a fence around the law of God. And they made up all their rules and regulations. You can't take so many steps on the Sabbath day. You can't lift up your mat and walk away, right, and so forth. You you can't pick a, pluck a, a head of grain in a field on the Sabbath day and eat it because you have not kept the Sabbath day Holy and so forth. Things that God never commanded, they made commandments. And so they had the law of God. They had their own traditions, of course, but here he's speaking of even the law. You cannot be justified. You cannot stand before God as right. You cannot receive forgiveness of sins just merely by trying to, as hard as you can, obey the laws of God. And so that's why God sent Jesus. Paul will just say this elsewhere in, in Galatians 4, that all the laws in the Old Testament They were all like a tutor. They were all like a tutor, like a teacher that was given to the Israelites like like an adult to a child to guide them and to direct them and to teach them and to lead them, to show them the ABCs and the 1, 2, 3s of the faith and to discipline them when they didn't keep uh, those commandments, when they they wrote their ABCs and 1, 2, 3s wrong. The law was a tutor. Paul said to lead them to whom? This Jesus has come, he says, to bring you forgiveness. Why? Because the law in itself cannot bring you forgiveness. It was only meant to be a tutor to lead you like a child to Jesus, the one who can forgive. Now, this speaks to us, of course, because we, as believers, we, we inherently recognize and we learn more and more over the course of our lives. We, we learn that you know, we, we, really can't, we really can't obey the laws of God. We really can't match the standard of God's perfect righteousness. We learn this. And so Paul speaks directly to, to that spiritual condition of all believers who, who recognize their sins and they realize that they cannot justify themselves and stand before God by the law of God. On the other hand, Paul's also speaking to a very particular Jewish audience, isn't he? And some Gentile God-fearers. Gentiles who have uh, undergone circumcision, the males at least. Uh, they have uh, they've undergone all the rituals. Uh, they eat kosher food and so forth. They keep the, They try to keep the commandments of God. And so he's speaking here to Jews or those who have converted to Judaism. That Jesus brought forgiveness from the things that the law of God cannot forgive you, uh, because the law of God cannot forgive you. We might say it like this for us. The principle still applies. That although this is spoken to a very particular Jewish audience, and you may not feel this weight today that the laws of the Old Testament have any relevance to you, and, you know, what does it matter to me? But we have a lot of cultural laws in our time. And it seems more and more that uh, these cultural laws, these cultural commandments, uh, these cultural expectations, uh, are for many people their religion. Those cultural laws, I'll give you a couple examples in a second, cannot forgive you of your sin. They cannot absolve you of wrongdoing. People think today that just by joining a hashtag, a trending hashtag, that they can absolve themselves of their sins. I, as a white male, you know, I, as a cisgendered white male, as they call me, right? They used to call us wasps. Right, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but now it's cisgendered male. But if I join a a, a hashtag uh, for whatever this hashtag might stand for, right, gender, diversity, equity, inclusion, and so forth, that I can somehow, you know, I can can shield myself from the Twitter mob, but I can also find absolution. I mean, these cultural laws of inclusivity and which really mean acceptance, going along, not just getting along, but going along, hundred percent agreement. And if you don't, you know, God help you, God help you. You probably saw the, the one uh, the, the one professing Christian uh, in the NHL who recently refused to put the rainbow flag on his uh, hockey stick because of what he believes, and it was absolute bedlam. Uh, in the media, you know, how dare this, you know, this cisgendered white male not stand up and be an ally. It's because the culture views this as their religion. This is the way to find forgiveness. And that's really just a, it's, it's a way to shield ourselves as human beings. It's to hide ourselves from the real problem. The real problem is our sin against an almighty holy god not that we've not been inclusive enough or that we've not been on the side of equity enough not that we've not virtue signaled enough not that we've not accepted enough that we've not been nice enough these are just veneer underneath there's a real problem and even the culture as they are using this veneer as a religion it manifests a real problem deep down side that none of us can solve outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to bring forgiveness from all the laws that cannot bring us forgiveness, whether they're the laws of God or whether they're traditions of men, whether they are culturally relevant, uh, acceptable things of the moment. These things cannot bring you acceptance. Only Jesus Christ can. And again, just saying that is a, sounds harsh to some people. It sounds fundamentalistic. Bible-thumping, not loving, hate-filled, fear-mongering, fo, uh, full of phobia. No, this is the most loving thing that we can say to a sinner, to you today, is that God has sent Jesus to bring you forgiveness, and it's only found in him. It's only found in him. So here's the Spirit of God sovereignly leading where this work of the gospel, this reviving work is going to come, uh, how it's going to come, by using the Word of God. And then we see here, uh, quickly, we see the response, uh, the the Spirit's sovereign work in the response, notice. Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation, speak it. Paul speaks it. He he traces the Old Testament. He focuses it all upon Jesus Christ. He applies it to them that forgiveness is proclaimed to you. All those who believe are are given forgiveness of sins. Notice the response beginning in verse 2. Now, the key to this section is the end of verse 48. That's the key to all that's going on here. We, from... From our, with our eyes, as we look outwardly and we, and we say, Jesus loves you. Jesus for, brings forgiveness to you. Believe in Jesus. And we know that some believe and some don't. Paul himself even agonizes, he says in Romans, his heart's desire, his prayer to God was that the Jews might be saved. But then he goes on and says, there's only a small remnant of grace. Most don't believe. From an outward perspective, right? That's how it is. Some believe, some don't. Verse 48, the end of verse 48, tells us why. And again, it might be a hard pill to swallow for some of us. But it's what the Bible says. What the Bible says. The Gentiles heard the gospel. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Why? And as many as were appointed in the past to eternal life believed. As many as the implied, they were appointed to eternal life by God. As many as God appointed to eternal life in eternity are the ones who, in that moment, in history, believed. Why do some believe and some don't? Well, there's a million and one reasons, but in in this In this instance, Paul gives us a glimpse behind the veil of of temporality and uh, and eternality. The, The idea that God elects some to salvation is what he says here. Why is it that... These particular, especially Gentiles believed, while we are told that the leadership of that synagogue incited devout women of high standing and leading into the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas. Why did some believe and some don't, or some didn't? just because of the work of God. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And we see some believe on that very first day, there in Antioch and Pisidia in that synagogue service verse 42 as they went out the people begged these things might be told them the next Sabbath and after the meeting of the synagogue broke out many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them urged them to continue in the grace of God some believed in that synagogue that day God's work of the Holy Spirit revived the souls of some and they were desirous to hear again the next Sabbath. And until that Sabbath comes, Paul and Barnabas said, continue in the grace of God. Continue embracing the forgiveness of Christ that, that, that Jesus Christ brings. But, verse 45, after that next city, the, uh, uh, the next Sabbath came, excuse me. Now notice this. The, almost the entire city, we are told, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. God saved some, and through that small group of some, almost an entire city now wants to hear what God has to say. I would say that's what a real revival is. Notice, they want to hear what God has to say. God was extraordinarily blessing his word. Nothing else, his word. But when the Jews, meaning the leaders here, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. I've mentioned this before. Uh, So far in our story, we see this theme of persecution is all throughout. Uh, And and kids, when you stand up up and tell your friends that you're a Christian, this is what's going to happen. Some are going to believe and some aren't. And those that don't, they might just walk away and be like, "Ah, I don't believe that. Some are going to persecute you. When you when you put as uh, you know, like for my older boys, when you put on your your Instagram account, professing Christian believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to be a target. You're putting a target on yourself. It's a good target, but you're putting a target. So just expect. And it's not just doing this on social media. It's as a believer who lives it out. When you live out your faith, when you say you're a believer and you live it out, you're a target. They incited a riot. They kicked them out of the city. They got people of high standing, leaders of the city, uh, to contradict them, to speak against them, to follow them, to kick them out of their city. They weren't allowed to be there anymore. And so there's that division that comes, that subsequent Sabbath. But notice what happens. Now, we think of persecution as snuffing out the light with darkness, we think of persecution as snuffing out uh, the flame of God with a with a with a big splash of cold water, and then it just ends the work of God. Notice persecution, we've seen this before in Acts. Persecution only furthers the gospel. What happens when they are kicked out of Pisidian Antioch? We read there that they they uh, they drove them out of their district, verse 50. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And what happens there? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And we'll see next Sunday what that looks like. Persecution only furthers the cause of Christ. The blood of the martyrs, the great church father said, is the seed of the church. God sovereignly uses persecution, threats, Uh, discouragements, even death to further the gospel. Can anything stop the cause of Jesus Christ on this earth? I came to build, he says, I came to build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And there's that beautiful phrase there. Again, notice that they are filled with joy and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter, uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, we saw this last Sunday, verse number 9, when, when Saul was there uh, in uh, the city of uh, Paphos in Cyprus, he was being hounded by this false prophet, Bar-Jesus, known as Elimus, this magician, this magos, this magi figure, Paul, but Paul, verse nine, filled with the Holy Spirit, and I mentioned last night that that is an extraordinary courage, an ability to speak the word of God in the face of opposition. And Paul did that, and what happened? The governor of Cyprus believed. In the same way, here the story begins with Paul or Saul being filled with the Holy Spirit. We might say, well, that's, that's obvious because he's an apostle. It ends with the disciples, all the disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit. God meets you and I here today. He meets us here in this place. He calls you and me as we hear these words. He calls you and me to put our trust for life and in death in Jesus Christ He calls us to rededicate as believers our lives to God's word and to spreading his word. He calls you and I to that. How do we do that? By accepting and recognizing the Spirit's sovereign appointments of life. That we are here in this place, and not just in this place this morning, but that we live in this place. I was asked again this week, you know, why would you stay in California? Everyone's leaving. Get out of Dodge, Pastor Danny. What are you doing? I believe with my whole heart that this is Nineveh and God has called me to be here. That's as simple as that. What better place to preach than in hell? And I'm a Californian. We need to recognize the Holy Spirit's sovereignty in appointing us to be here. Yes, it's difficult, and yes, politics and taxes and, and all the regulations and all the, all the weirdness and all the strength. Yes, it's hard. This is where God has put us. Let's believe that. How do, we, how do we rededicate our lives to spreading the word? Well, it's by getting into the word so that we can get the word into others. other. Simple as that. We see that here, Paul doing that. And I would say as well, As God meets us and calls you and I to to, to give our lives to him and to serve him and to dedicate our lives to spreading his word in as as small ways or as large ways as he calls us, this means that you and I are to expect, to expect the Holy Spirit to actually work in extraordinarily blessing. This means that we use, which is spreading the gospel, we have to believe that the Spirit of God is actually going to do something through us. You can, you can thaw off just a tad bit. You can thaw off a tad bit. It's okay. <laughs> Frozen, chosen, you can thaw off a tad bit. The Holy Spirit can use us as much as the next. But we've got to believe that. We've got to believe that. Let's give ourselves to Jesus. Let's embrace the gospel. Let's go out and serve. And let's use the opportunities he's given us to do that with all of our hearts. Let's pray. We bless you, Lord. We praise you. We give thanks to you for the good news that's come to us uh, at some point in our lives where we believe that your forgiveness constantly comes to us and you remind us in your word of your forgiving grace. And so we pray uh, that you would bless us this morning as a, as a church family. Uh, Lord, fill us with your, with your word and spirit that we would be uh, enlivened and revived. And so that in this place, uh, Lord, you would continue to uphold your fame, your name your glory and to bring salvation to those that so desperately need it we pray for the loss for our friends and neighbors those that we just have acquaintance with those that we might just meet in the way uh, to and fro this week but lord we pray that you would use us and that you would uh, establish continually uh, this church uh, and lord all of your people across this region that the gospel would spread and that lord we would see uh, lives change we ask all this in jesus name and all of god's people say amen Let's uh, sing together in response to the, the Word of God with joy in our hearts as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, our last song is uh, on that other, the other side of that insert this morning, uh, part of Psalm 148 um, with uh, the, the chorus refrain, Our God is an Awesome God. Let's stand and sing.